0: Mark 16 When the Sabbath was past Mary Magdalene the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb Looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled away it was very large And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Fathers, we conclude this gospel. I pray uh, that you will warm our cold hearts to the truth of the resurrection. Lord, you know in us there is the flesh that kicks against this reality. But I pray that you would again renew our hearts and and minds and our souls in a love for this truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every Sunday morning, after I read the scripture, I will conclude with, This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I know that you guys are typically really looking forward to that moment. I don't know that you necessarily care so much about the point where I say this is the word of the Lord. I think you're really looking forward to, especially when I read an entire chapter, the point where I say you may be seated. But I do think it's important that we mark off because you have so much input throughout the week. So much is coming to you every single week where you have input from social media, from the news, from your family, from your friends, all this input coming into you. And here's... One moment of hopefully several moments where God just gets to speak uninterrupted. And so, therefore, I think it's appropriate where we get to say, this is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to you, his words for you. And yet you'll notice this morning, I did not read all of chapter 16. Sometimes I break it up, but in this particular morning, for a very particular reason, I concluded with verse 8. Now, as you will look down in your Bibles here, unless you have a King James Version, you will see bracketed here, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Um, it really ought to read all of the most early manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. To which you say, well, wait a sec. Are you trying to say that there are parts of my Bible that are not in my Bible that don't belong there? Well, hold on, I want you to stick with me just for a moment here. I think you should be aware, and I don't get to dabble into this much, but I want you to be aware, so I hope you had your second cup of coffee this morning, because I do want to to get into this just for a brief moment here, so stick with me before we come back to verses 1 through 8. I want you to understand, first of all, of all the Bible passages that we go through, there are really only two places Where we are not confident that it is the original text. uh, Where it was an addition likely later. It doesn't mean that these events didn't occur. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that they were entered after the initial author put them in. And that would be a very small snippet in John chapter 8. And then what is dubbed or called the long ending of Mark. Which is verses 9 through 20 here. Second, you do need to know that there is a lot of information On this topic on this issue. So if you're curious and you want to gain a full understanding of how this works and what's going on I would love to point you to some helpful resources that I've been going through over the years and even more recently preparing for this And so there are plenty there's plenty out there to understand and get a grasp on what's going on here I've read I think a little bit more this last few weeks on this issue than I would really like to admit But I'll tell you some of the fruit of that that has come out is just a further resolve that when I read the text of the Bible that I'm able to say, this is the word of the Lord. I feel very confident. Every fiber in my being is able to say this without flinching. Third, I'd like to tell you this morning that the real crux of this whole matter, it does not surround whether the Bible is inspired, true, or authoritative. Really what is going on here is an issue of transmission. Transmission. Because I agree, the Bible is true, it's authoritative, it is uh, trustworthy, it is inspired. I do believe all those pieces. But what's going on here with this longer ending of Mark is an issue of transmission. I I distinctly recall, I was sitting in Portland State University, and the prof gets up and he says, Hey, just want you to know you can't really trust these Bibles that are out there. Uh, You you know how this all worked. It was translated from Aramaic uh, into Latin and then later it was translated back into Greek before into English. And he concocted this whole thing. And I remember kind of being taken back like this. So he says, "You, you can't really know what Matthew said or what Mark or Luke or John say on any of these matters. He said, even less certain was whatever Jesus said. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, this is rather strange. And so when I started to look into these things myself, I found out the problem was none of what he said was actually true. It's not the case. Uh, he was either purposely being ignorant, closed-minded, not really being a true thinker on these things. No, friends, the field of scholarship that deals with this, it's, it's called textual criticism. It's not really rocket science. It's not a mystery. If you desire to study this, it becomes crystal clear. What is going on? Being that the Bible was copied and then copied and then copied, uh, occasionally there would be a small error here, a small error there that would come in, like a spelling or punctuation, and, and eventually more copies of those errors get copied. But if you take all of the copies and boil them back down, you can look for the older and more trustworthy manuscripts to get back to what the original reading is. Um, it leaves us very confident that what we hold here is the word of the Lord. And so um, you have to understand further that it wasn't a case where they were translating from Latin to Greek. And then before they translated it into English, um, that over, that overstates the whole matter. Uh, friends, when the King James Version was produced in 1611. And when the Geneva Bible even earlier in 1560, well, actually the new Testament portion was 1557. But in that era, you have to understand they had all the manuscripts before them, the Latin, the Greek, the Hebrew. And they, there was over almost 50 scholars that worked on the King James version alone. They, 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 were bright minds. They were sharp cats. They, they did a thorough job taking what they had on hand and coming To the King James Version. And you have to understand our modern versions. Because we have more manuscripts available. And more evidence to help us get to the original reading. That we're always able now to go back and try to find. What are the earlier most trustworthy manuscripts. And so uh, when you do this work. You do find that the earliest and most trustworthy. Don't have this longer reading of Mark. And And further you do find. That even the earlier commentators like Origen and, and some of the others, um, as they're making comments, they, they ignore this longer section. It is as if this does not exist to them. Um, and eventually when Jerome, he was the first to translate the Greek into Latin around 400... As he was doing that, he mentions Jerome around 400 because by then this longer ending was already out there floating around. And he notes, he, he, he pens in, in the margin as he's beginning the work of the translation. He says, you know, most of the manuscripts don't have this longer ending, but a couple do. And so he kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm just going to put it in the Latin anyways. And so once it got into the Latin at that point, it just kind of stuck and his, and his, and his been around. And so it made it in, if you will. But I think if if you truly analyze each of the following verses, uh, 9 through 20, you find essentially what they are is a patchwork quilt of the other Gospels. Uh, It's as if someone did not like the ending of how Mark ended at 8 and said, I'm going to grab a little bit from John, a little bit from Luke, a little bit from Matthew and piece in some pieces here to try and flesh out what happened from verse 8 going forward. And the reason that I think a copyist would do this, is if you look at verse 8, this verse kind of ends on a rather strange note. I believe that the intent of the copyist is to try and help out where the other three Gospels have much more completion, much more of a a resolve, of a commissioning, sending off. Uh, Mark, you get this cliffhanger. Instead of the, uh, and they lived happily ever after, and they went out just spreading the Gospel everywhere. It kind of ends... Well, on this odd note, and I think that odd note is part of the point, and so do many Bible commentators. In fact, one pointed out the final word of this book. Look at the end of verse eight. What I would argue the final word of this book is afraid. It's afraid, Um, which in a book about discipleship and following Jesus, this word actually shows up rather an unusual amount of times, almost once per chapter, phobos, which meaning you know, where we get the word phobia, but fear or afraid. And so then I began to look up and I said, well, let me trace out how much I see that the disciples are astonished, afraid, fearful, um, taken aback, these, these various ways, and you find out it's very often. For example, after Jesus calms the storm, why are you so afraid? you still don't have faith and they were filled with great fear and he said they said to one another who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him or how about when after the man who p- was possessed with many demons was healed the disciples were afraid and when the woman was healed who had the flow of blood she was healed and she comes trembling with fear falling down before Jesus when Jesus was walking on the sea the disciples were afraid in other words Uh, what we find, words like amazed, terrified, astonished, I think these are all appropriate words for someone who truly encounters Jesus. If we were there, if you and I were sitting right there watching all these things unfold, I think the appropriate response for you would be to have some astonishment mixed with fear, mixed with being afraid, being astounded by all these things that you're taking in. Because everything you had known, everything you had assumed, everything you had presupposed, would all be called into question. People don't go from being deathly sick to instantaneously being healed, do they? People don't go from being blind or lame to the next day just walking. People can't instantaneously read the minds of others. Walking on water is impossible. Telling the storm, knock it off, and it does, is not normal. Neither is a man who is hung on a cross and murdered To be seen three days later, walking as if nothing happened. This leaves people trembling. It leaves them, if they really get it, afraid. Phobos, fear. And here the reality of what has happened has gripped these women. Their women are coming, coming up to the tomb. These events unfold and they're gripped with fear. Friends, this reality of the resurrection of Jesus is the full and final crux of Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise and rise indeed, then we have no business here. I think if Jesus did not walk out of that tomb, I will be the first one to walk out of these doors, not to return. I've got better things to do with my time. No, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then my preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul says this. In fact, Paul, he says more than that. He says, we are found. We are found. If if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are found to be false. And all people who've died have perished. And for Christians, there's no middle ground on this issue. It is the central issue. The cross leading to the resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now notice Paul doesn't say, well, we're sort of like hoping this was a thing or we're just sort of wishing hope against hope. This happened. No, he says, but in fact, Christ raised from the dead. And he's so sure on this matter. He says, you can go talk to the 500 brothers who saw him after he had ascended. They, they saw him. Paul himself saw Christ. Well, didn't see him, but he encountered him on the road to Damascus. Damascus, I'm uh, not Damascus, Oregon. Um, Damascus, Israel. It's a different Damascus. Oh, should we be so lucky. But so many from our 2022 era, they scoff and they say, ah, you know, people from the first century. They are so gullible. Uh, they're gullible. They, they kind of take on this stuff and they just sort of want this to be true and they'll believe anything. Uh, but now with our high tech innovation, now with our science, Who can really simply believe this sort of thing right here? And so that we can sort of sit in the judgment seat and pretend that we can truly analyze whether or not people in the first century were intelligent, were gullible or not. Friends, church, I think we ought to be humble about this. You do know that there are some of the most brilliant minds who came out of that century. You you do understand that men with much higher IQs than you or I have came from back then. These these were not idiots. No. Also, friends, don't forget, in a couple hundred years from now, people are going to look back on us right here, and they're going to say, oh, those people from 2022, they were idiots. Look at them with their cell phones and their laptops and their fast food. I mean, how backwards can these people possibly be? Every generation looks back and assumes unintelligence on the previous one. Let us not be like that. Let us assume the best about these people, that they were intelligent, that they listened in, that they were keyed into the reality of what actually happened. And it changed them. It changed them. And so we want to give them credit. Nobody was really expecting the resurrection. They were not just saying, hey, we're showing up here to the tomb expecting this. It was the last thing on their minds. It was mind-blowing. And it's interesting, the fact that it was mind-blowing, because Jesus had over and over said, yeah, this is how it's going to go down. Uh, remember how he says, hey, just so you know, this is Mark chapter 8, just so you know, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then because the disciples are just so unwilling to take this in because they're just "Eh, this is I don't want to believe this he says it again in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10 and and and, and in the midst of this it was a playbook they could have gone check 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 okay the son of man will be betrayed oh here comes Judas check okay the son of man is going to be rejected by the leaders okay the the Jewish leaders check the the Roman leadership check oh he's going to be uh, mocked and scorned check check oh he will be crucified check The only thing left to check was that in three days later, he would rise. Friends, what they should have done if they had truly believed that this was going to happen after checking all the boxes and waiting for this third one. Well, what I would have done if I had perfect faith is I would have set up a tent right outside the tomb. I would have called you all. Let's do a bonfire. Judy, bring your guitar. We're going to cook up some food. We're going to have a feast. We're going to sing praises late into the night. We're going to stay up for three days until we see him walk out of that tomb because we would have had such bold faith. But this was unexpected. They did not really expect this. They heard his words and yet they carried on as if that last part, the resurrection was impossible. There was a, in in the Jewish leadership, a godly and righteous man. Luke tells us uh, his name uh, was Joseph of Arimathea, that he was part of the Sanhedrin. And back in chapter 15, in Mark here, we read that Joseph treats Jesus as if he wants to honor a man who was going to make a difference. You know, like we we may go about trying to honor a president who dies or MLK. Uh, There there are certain folks that we want to honor in a particular way. And Joseph of Arimathea, he's requesting the body uh, from Pilate, we read back in chapter 15, 46, where Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then we find that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were there and and saw where he was laid And so these are all the normal procedures that you would do for honoring a person after death. You purchase this brand new shroud, you wrap up the body. And then we get to chapter 16 here where the women who witnessed all this, they're waiting for the Sabbath to pass because you wouldn't go to the market to buy spices during the Sabbath. You'd wait for the Sabbath to pass and they go to the market. They they purchase these uh, burial spices and you have to ask yourself, what were they coming to the tomb to see? What were they coming to the tomb to do? They were expecting to see Jesus in there. They're expecting to see Jesus dead in there and they're not even deliberating on uh, and and they're sorry. They are deliberating on how they're going to get this stone removed at this point from the tomb. Now, this would have been a large stone that would have taken several men and and their three women. So they're they're wondering, how are we going to be able to get this stone moved out of the way? And here they're worried that there won't be anyone to help them move so they can actually get access to Jesus. The expectation, let this sink in, the expectation is that they will anoint the body with burial spices to honor him. And if you sat and you read this gospel in one sitting, you'd find that even with as clear and as plain as Jesus speaks about the future, the disciples constantly don't get it. Even here at the end, when everything has gone according to plan, um, and the very last thing to be accomplished is his resurrection, they don't get it. Friends, you would imagine after the three hours of darkness that happened on Friday, um, after the the temple veil being torn in two, miraculously, they would have said, Oh, this is all coming. This is all coming true. Very true indeed. But they still don't really believe the resurrection is on the docket. So this here, this is what is so obvious. Uh, We may wrongly assume that these people were simply naive or gullible, simple-minded, But no, friends, these disciples are a lot more like us than we give them credit for. They, like us, apart from the gift of faith, struggle to believe. They so doubt the resurrection that they proceed on as if it's impossible to happen. For in their minds, it is. Even over in Matthew, uh, we read that after Jesus was resurrected and walking around, some people literally saw him with their eyes. And Matthew 27, it notes, and some doubted, which is interesting. I think that tells us, even if Jesus were to right now, just somehow float down through the ceiling here and just levitate in front of us, there would be some, because of the hardness of heart and lack of faith, would just go, yeah, no, nope. my eyes are deceiving me. I had bad pizza, something, but they would refuse to believe. Why disbelieve? Here's why. Because the resurrection is astonishing. It's astonishing. It's supposed to be incredible to even believe it because it's not normal. But further, we need to see it wasn't normal to accept a woman's testimony. The first eyewitnesses to this resurrection event in all four Gospels are women. And Mark here wants us to see that they're not just random women. He lists their names and he lists their names in chapters 15 and 16 three times. I think he's listing their names three times to say these three specific women Were there much like a a footnote you might have in in a a textbook, so that you can go back and actually get the original source. Which three women? Some random three women? I can't. No, these three women right here were the ones who saw where Jesus was laid, came back and found the tomb empty, and they were. And you can go talk to them. They were in their right mind. Mary Magdalene, who had been healed by Jesus. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, likely Jesus's mother. And Salome or Salome, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, the women were the ones who noted exactly where his body was placed. They were the women who bought the spices, and they came early to anoint the body, and further were the witnesses of the angel who announces it's empty. It has been shown over and over that during the first century that a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. And this is what makes this even more difficult to believe. So that to have these women be the first witnesses does not actually help the Gospels be believed. Rather, they hinder them from being believed. Uh, You should realize that this was part of the argument during the second century. Uh, One of the first uh, anti-Christian writers, if you want to call him that, was a man named Celsus. He was a Greek philosopher, and he argued it this way. Here's how he put it. He said, you can't trust these Gospels because hysterical women were involved. That's what he said. Now that wouldn't fly today and it shouldn't have flown back then. Celsus going off saying this sort of stuff. Why? Because women were treated sadly as outcasts. They weren't to be trusted. Their testimony didn't hold up in court. And I only point all this out to show that Christianity was not birthed. It didn't come out of some sort of propped up, you know, retelling of what happened. Oh, there was a bunch of intelligent, bright men who were there. No, it's brutally honest. It was the women, the women who were there, who saw all this. And the reason Christianity grew so quickly amidst all the pressure of of us not to believe it, against the women, against the miraculousness of it, is because the tomb really was empty. Jesus really did appear to the disciples and many others. The apostles really did stake their life on this truth. And here, though, with the women, do you see the reaction here in Mark 16? It's important. Their reaction was not to come to the empty tomb. They didn't show up and go, well, just like we thought, it's empty. No, the words that they're used are here are alarmed, trembling, astonishment. And what I've said, the last word of this book is they're afraid. It's supposed to be incredible to even believe the resurrection because it's not normal. And they treat it like that. Suppose with me for a moment that you found out that your spouse or your kids or maybe your parents, they they said, hey, I know I didn't tell you any of this, but I'm actually a Russian KJB agent. And I need you to get in this small plane and we're going to fly you off to a private island because in a week from now, there's going to be nuclear war here. You'd be saying, everything I've ever known, (laughs) everything I've known for all this time has just been undone. My entire worldview is upside down. You'd be gripped. You wouldn't be saying to your spouse, aha, I knew it. I knew I knew you were with the KJB. You'd be saying, I'm alarmed. I'm trembled. I'm astonished. I'm afraid. Everything you've known would be shaken. So too with these gals right here. Everything they've known about life is that when you die, you're dead. End of the line. But this Jesus, whom you physically saw die, and whom you saw placed in the tomb is now gone, all of a sudden death is not an end. It's a passageway. All of your categories have been blown. This is not normal. This is unbelievable. But here the women truly believe it. It's why they respond with a state of shock. I'm not sure if you're like me, but there are times when you hear about the resurrection and it just sort of becomes so routine for us as Christians, so baked in, that We grow cold to it so that whether it's on Easter Sunday or whether it's on August 14th, somebody says he is risen. Risen He's risen indeed. Um, Pizza or leftovers for lunch. We just kind of grow cold to it. Don't we? We say, yes, you know, ah, this is was once miraculous to us. And now it's just old hat. You know, this gal, I was talking with her, and she, she says, you Christians, you're crazy. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. She says, you Christians, you're crazy. You believe that this Jesus died? I'm thinking, yes. And then she says, but then after he was dead, he was seen alive. Exactly. And she says, that's crazy. And I said, finally, somebody who gets it. Somebody who really gets it. To believe the resurrection is normal, should not be normal. And if I can just add that the incredibleness of the resurrection answers the very issue and question that you and I, we come here in this morning, that we have in our souls and our hearts. Uh, The resurrection says that there is more than this earthly life. Um, For all we have, if we have only this earthly life, there's the pointlessness of it all. If all we have is right this, you live 70, 80, 90, 100 years and that's it, What's the point at the end of it all? Really, what's the point if we carry on and on trying to better our situation, trying to better our attitudes, our hearts, better our lives, then just to have all of your memories, all of your life experiences, just disappear with one last final breath. What's the point then? Don't we desire a secure eternal home to carry on, to have an end goal that makes life better than it has ever been let me put it this way. C. S. Lewis, in his great book, "Mere Christianity," he writes on hope, And in a very simple way, Lewis brings this out that everything seems to let us down. At, at a certain point, whatever you've been looking forward to seems to kind of fall short of what you'd hope it would be. You know, I, I plan for the vacation, we plan for it, we prep for it, we spend money for it, and then you kind of get there, and it just eh, falls short of what you were hoping it would end up being. Not the new job, not the new spouse. These things never really end up fully satisfying the way we hope that they would. And so Lewis says, well, what do you do? Well, here's what you do. Okay, there's two ways you can go about this. He says, number one, the way to go is to is to start hunting for a better vacation. So, so you start looking for a better spouse. You look for a better job. You look for a better location to live. And you're constantly looking for the newer and the better in hopes that it will finally be the place that satisfies. Ah, but it doesn't work. Or he says, here's the second way you go about it. Rather than try to pursue and chase the rainbow, what you do is you just simply sink into despair. Why try? Who cares? You just sort of give up on really trying to pursue hope and satisfaction. And then I think he comes to this brilliant Christian response. He says, creatures, they're not born without desires. Unless there happens to be something that will truly meet those desires, satisfy those desires. So he looks around the world and he says, there are hungry babies. And so there are nursing mothers. There are ducks who want to be in water, little ducklings. And so there is water for them to swim in. Desires don't exist. He says, unless the satisfaction for those desires can be met. And I believe Mark here wants us to see that through the resurrection, our satisfaction can be met. We don't chase the rainbows. We don't despair. If we have the desire to truly live, and we want a desire to live in peace with our creator, then surely the satisfaction for those desires exists. And the real way into that satisfaction is Jesus Christ. The God man who paved with his life for our sin, a road from heaven to earth shown to us through the resurrection. This answers the ultimate desire that you truly have deep down in your heart of hearts. Let's conclude. I'd like us to look at the last two verses here. Verse seven and eight. I'm going to read those again to you, but go tell his disciples and Peter, Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Friends, I know you probably have forgotten at the very beginning when we opened up this gospel of Mark, there was one of uh, right at the outset, there was amazing healings going on. One of them was a man with leprosy. And at that point in time, Jesus heals the man. He looks the man in the face and he says, look, I've healed you. Don't go tell anyone about this healing. And then Mark tells us, what did he do? (laughs) He went out and told everybody. Then at the end of the book here, we're told another miraculous, miraculous event has happened, a true healing, the best healing, the resurrection. And now the call is different. Instead of don't tell, the angel says, Go and tell, but then what do we read instead of doing that? They don't tell anybody, for they were afraid. <laughs> the complete inverse. It's interesting. Here at the end of the gospel, the disciples still struggle to follow through and do the right thing. I wonder if we're on the other side of this whole coin. You you and I, we don't share. You and I, we don't tell. I I, I don't think it's because we're afraid. I think, I wonder if it's because we think there's nothing to really be afraid of. And so we don't share because go, heaven, hell, eh, whatever. Do we have to share about this? Ah, An encouragement to you, friends, because of the reality of this, that you do share, because a spoiler alert, these gals, even though at this moment, as the way the gospel closes, they don't share, they do end up sharing. The reason you're a Christian here today is because these women went out and started telling everybody what happened. They did end up sharing eventually uh, what they saw from and heard from the resurrected Lord. And my prayer is that we would uh, become Christians who want to share. I'm keenly aware that's not the main point of this passage. But friends, it definitely is a sub point that bears consideration for us. At least put it on the table. A first good step to do with your friend's Or your neighbors or your co workers or your family who don't know that you're a believer, is put it on the table or re put it on the table if time has passed. I'm going to church this weekend. I'm praying for you because I believe that God can intervene. Just put it on the table so they at least know. It cracks the door open for maybe another conversation with them. And you can let them know that you do believe. You do believe in this unbelievable Jesus. And I think that's the real end of the book here. And, friends, it's the real end of my sermon. Would you pray with me? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us in your gospel that has the power to save us. Lord, reconfirm to us, even as we have seen in this book, who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? It's so clear. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Surely, truly, truly, he is the son of the living God. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.